Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin with today's major breaking news from New York with that jaw-dropping number, $453,500,000. That is the amount Judge Arthur N. Goron has ruled Donald Trump has to pony up in his New York civil fraud case, which includes nearly $100 million in interest. That number will continue to grow until he pays. And if that was not enough to ruin Trump's weekend plans, and Goran also ruled that Trump is barred from personally running a business in New York for the next three years. Yes, the man who built his whole brand around being a successful and wealthy businessman and real estate tycoon has been hit with an unimaginable fine. And Goran's ruling also hit the elder Trump sons, finding Eric Trump and Donald Trump $4 million apiece and finding Trump's longtime business manager, Alan Weisselberg, one million dollars. Moments ago, New York Attorney General Letitia James reacted to the ruling. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. This long running fraud was intentional, egregious, illegal. Today, we are holding Donald Trump accountable. We are holding him accountable for lying, cheating, and a lack of contrition, and for flouting the rules that all of us must play by. And for being honest, this ruling is not all that surprising, given that before the trial began in October, and Goron had already found Trump liable for fraudulently inflating the value of his properties to get better terms on loan and insurance applications. But nevertheless, that doesn't lessen the pain from the one-two punch where it hurts Trump the most, to his wallet, and his ego. In his 92-page ruling, Judge Ngoron used Trump's own claims against him in making this decision, writing, Donald Trump professed to know more about real estate than other people and to be more expert than anybody else. He repeatedly falsified business records with the intent to defraud. At one point in his ruling, Ngoron referenced English poet Alexander Pope's, to err is human, to forgive is divine. He then wrote, quote, Defendants apparently are of a different mind. After some four years of investigation and litigation, the only error, inadvertent of course, that they acknowledge is the tripling of the size of the Trump Tower penthouse, which cannot be gainsaid. Their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. The Trump Organization is calling this ruling a gross miscarriage of justice, and Donald Trump's legal spokeswoman and sometimes lawyer, Alina Haba, has already said they will appeal. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, law professor at New York University and MSNBC legal analyst. Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor at Bloomberg Opinion and MSNBC political analyst. And Tristan Snell, former assistant attorney general for New York and author of Taking Down Trump, 12 Rules for Prosecuting Donald Trump by Someone Who Did It Successfully. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to go right down the middle to you, Tim. You wrote a piece entitled 
Trump loved in New York. Now it's giving him the boot. I'm going to read you to you. You write, the former president fashioned himself as a Gotham tycoon and longed to be accepted in its elite business circles. The rejection from that world may sting more than the severe financial penalties. Say more. Well, you know, when we talk about the Trump legacy, we should remember that we're not talking about the Rockefellers or the Roosevelt's, neither the business or political sense. Uh, it's sort of a pulp novel version of those families. But nonetheless, Trump spent decades fashioning this idea of himself as the consummate New York dealmaker and entrepreneur. And and he he got into the world and got the attention he he was able to glean from it largely on the shoulders of his father. It was it was it was Fred Trump's wealth that 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 gave Trump this springboard into business and also insulated him from myriad mistakes he made for decades in his business career. And in the decades since, he's essentially taken a sledgehammer to the foundations of his own myth making and the foundations of much of what Fred transferred to him in in New York. He's he he has a massive penalty that he's going to have to scramble to pay. And 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 he's got on his sort of forehead now this mark of Cain. He has been exiled for three years from New York, and he can't do business in the state. And for someone whose identity was shaped as a New Yorker, uh, particularly as a businessman, uh, and, the, and the city is now turning to him, and the state is now turning to him and say, go somewhere else, we don't want you. It is a comeuppance that is going to sting for him I think, for the rest of his days. Uh, it is ironic that it is New York that is making him pay the price, Melissa. It is New York that is bringing him to heel. Uh, it is Letitia James. Uh, it's coming up, going to be Alvin Bragg, who's also got a case coming up. But it first started with E. Jean Carroll. E. Jean Carroll held Donald Trump to account for defaming her and for sexually assaulting her to the tune of $83.3 million plus the $5 million she got the first time. So we're just going to put it up here. He now owes 450. $3.5 million in this case, New York civil fraud case. He owes Ms. Carroll $83.3 million. Should we assume that he's ever going to pay that money himself? Or is he just going to make the RNC pay it once his daughter-in-law is in charge of the RNC? And is he going to have all those people buying $29 red hats, or I guess they're $46 or $45 plus tax? Are they going to end up paying this? Is he going to go to all the little people who are in his cult and make them pay it rather than him? Well, it's a great question, Joy. When we interviewed Robbie Kaplan, who was the lawyer who represented E. Jean Carroll in that defamation case, we interviewed her on our podcast, Strict Scrutiny, and she was very clear that Donald Trump would be putting up a bond, that it had all been organized, and that E. Jean Carroll would be getting her money. And so, you know, all of this is sort of fungible pots and money being moved around. I mean, I think a big aspect of the interest in campaigning, um, the interest in the RNC, is to free up certain kinds of money, certain lines of money to run the campaign so that his personal funds aren't able to be used for it. So, you know, a lot of this is basically about managing the various pots of money that are accessible to the Trump family. But for sure, the fact that he has that bond will certainly be secured to the value of his properties, values that far exceed the amount of this judgment. So, I mean, it definitely can be covered by his holdings. That is something that's going to happen. He's going to be on the hook for this, um, especially if the appellate division of the New York courts actually affirm this judgment going forward. So I think we wait to see what happens with the appeal. But yes, um, certainly campaigning is going to be a way to funnel some cash into his campaign so that he does not privately fund it.
Right. And, but to your to your what you're saying, though, is he has to put up a bond if he wants to appeal and he has to back that by property he owns. Right. right. OK, well, well, at least he has to do that. Uh, let me go to you, Tristan, because you do have the experience of having done this to him uh, on Trump University. So, uh, you know, you, you know how Tisha James is feeling today about uh, getting some accountability. There was an interesting part in this ruling um, in which on uh, page what is this? This is page uh, three, I believe here. Um, no, page four. They make the point that timely repayment of loans does not extinguish the harm that false statements inflict on the marketplace are essentially saying saying we paid back the money doesn't do any good. And they put up this these properties here, Seven Springs, 40 Wall Street, Mar-a-Lago, Trump International Golf Force, Trump National Golf Club and Trump Park. All of these properties he now is have been has been adjudicated that he inflated their value. If, so it, the fact that he paid his bills potentially for the mortgages on those properties, why did that not help him? That's not what the law requires. This is not a commercial case between a bank and a uh, fraudulent uh, debtor. This was a case being brought by the people of the state of New York under a statute that is similar to statutes in all 50 states and on the federal books as well that basically say you cannot have these frauds on the marketplace. You cannot just be able to lie and say whatever you want and get away with it. And we're not going to wait for some wronged party that may or may not have Stockholm syndrome or the bank equivalent of <laughs> Stockholm syndrome to come forward. We're going to say that the people are going to sue to vindicate their rights. And that's what happened today. You know, what's interesting that you say that. And Tim O'Brien, I'm going to come back to you because you've also beaten Trump in court. <laughs> I mean, it's like a panel of people who've beaten Trump in court uh, here. Um, we're waiting for Melissa's case as well. I mean, th- there is this thing um, where we learn in this, you know, little uh, ruling here about something a lot of Americans will never experience, private wealth management. The way that he was able to go around what normal people have to do when you want a mortgage, he had a private wealth manager. Um, and also there was just his attitude. Uh, the, the, the ruling points out his behavior. Overall, Donald Trump rarely responded to questions he was asked. He frequently interjected long, irrelevant speeches on issues far beyond the scope of the trial. He refused to answer the questions directly or in some cases at all severely compromised his credibility. Is what we're seeing in part here just the hubris of wealth, that wealthy people feel like I don't have to pay my bills. I don't have to tell the truth. I don't even have to go to the bank. I just go to my private wealth manager and they give me money because of my name. Well, even within the world of extremely wealthy people, Donald Trump is in a class by himself. Most wealthy people are not this unhinged in a courtroom and (laughs) and and haven't had the sort of decades of financial malfeasance and pushing the, the edges of civil society to get what he wants and the rule of law. And it finally caught up with him. And I think one thing really focusing on, you know, in the in the ruling, when Angoron said that the 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 defendants disdain for the crimes they were charged with bordered on the pathological, I'm paraphrasing, but he certainly used the word pathologic. And and all of Trump's antics in the courtroom and his lawyers' antics that were scoring them big points on the political trail, that he sort of felt uh, he was free to do, I think, and his lawyer, Alina Haba, who's now brought two massive financial penalties on her client's shoulders, uh, uh, attacked the judges in these free-for-alls in every case. And I think they thought they were just going to roll the courtroom. 
And and I was surprised by by the severity of the financial penalty in this case. I thought what Angoran was going to do was kick Trump out of New York, and maybe shave this $370 million ask down to a much lower amount. And I think you can read into this document that that he was sick of the way Trump conducted himself and and he wanted him to pay for it. In terms of the private bank, just and I'll be brief, the remarkable thing about his private banker was the commercial real estate lenders at Deutsche Bank ended up getting burned by Donald, by Donald Trump and refused to do business with them. And the private bankers in the same bank went ahead and did it. So it's not only that the wealthy can get around the corners the rest of us have to deal with, they can sometimes play people in the same bank off against one another to get loans they might not otherwise get. Yeah. And I think that, Melissa, is, I think, for a lot of people, it is sort of shocking to me, the number of broke people who revere Donald Trump. I mean, what this reads as this here ruling is the way that people who are super rich don't have to play by the rules, or at least they don't think they have to play by the rules. He clearly didn't think that he could just make up you know, that his building had more floors than it had, that his apartment was bigger than it was, and he could just say whatever he wanted, and that, you know, bankers actually bought it. No, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Joy. Um, You know, one of the things that's always, I think, fascinated individuals sort of observing the Trump phenomenon is like how many individuals are voting against their actual interests, economic and otherwise, when they cast a vote for Donald Trump. Like this is someone who is the scion of a very wealthy family who portrays himself as the vindicator of the everyman. And, you know, this is not someone who spends his time in Walmart parking lots. This is someone who has a gold plated toilet in Trump Tower. But this is someone that working class Americans, Americans who feel aggrieved by the system really resonate with. He is setting things right. And they love that brashness. Um, They love the fact that he's not taking anything sitting down and he's really going toe to toe with these institutions, including people like Judge Angoran. So in many ways, this trial sort of cemented their affection for this figure. Um, This is everything that they like about him. Well, he may be a lot more like them soon, too, because by the time he's done, he might be broke and he might be one of the broke. We'll see what happens. My distinguished panel is staying with me for more on this brutal week of crushing legal setbacks for Trump. I don't know. Will they like him as much when he's broke? We'll see. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
We're following the major breaking news out of New York today. Judge Arthur and Goron dealing a crushing blow to Donald Trump in his civil fraud case, ordering Trump to pay over $453 million in damages and barring him from running a business in New York for three years. Uh, our panel is back. Melissa Murray, Tim O'Brien, Tristan Snell. Uh, Tim, this was Trump's first truth social post after the ruling. He shared a series of photos of himself alleging that in one of them he looks physically heavier. And he claims that the that AI was used to make him look big, to make him look big boned. And he says the other pictures of me hitting golf balls today to show the difference. Sadly, in our country, fake news is all you get. So his first post is to say, I'm not fat. <laughs> Your thoughts. You know, you know, well, <laughs> it's just it, how, how pathetic is all of this? You know, this this is a former president of the United States who sits atop billions of dollars, who makes decisions that they affect the lives of average people in the United States and across the world. He potentially has have his finger on the nuclear button again, and he's posting figures, pictures, arguing that he doesn't have a pot belly. Uh, and by the <laughs> way, pictures of him on a golf course where he routinely cheats. And, and, uh, it is yet another, you know, exhibit in a long series of exhibits that this man is not well. He is deeply unhinged and he's been permitted to sort of wade across um, American society and the international landscape because he is this outcome of a lot of problems in the United States that he personifies. And people are willing to let him get away with this because he plays upon their worst in instincts and their worst emotions and their fears. And he just remind us, reminds us every day that we've got a cartoon character campaigning again for the White House. Yeah. And, you know, Tristan, your book is called Prosecuting Donald Trump and the 12 Steps to Like to Doing It. And I mean, there, there are lots of people who are going to be following suit and doing these prosecutions. But isn't the message of this prosecution that, you know, a lot of Americans say, and I've never understood this, they say we, we want our country to be run like a business. Well, businesses lay people off and boost their stock price by reducing people's wages. I'm not sure why they want, you know, they want their the country to be run like a business, but whatever. But isn't the message of this that Donald Trump cannot be trusted by the state of New York, his home state, to run a business? Like, isn't that the bottom line of this ruling, that he can't be trusted to run a business? That's exactly right. He cannot be trusted to make statements to other parties in the business world. You know, there, really what we got to look at is what were the values that were truly appraised for these properties, and then what did he claim they were? And there have been a number of really great graphics that have shown this, but where you see just in black and white the disparity, we're not talking about a 10% disparity, 20%, oh, we, we added a little bit to puff it up a little bit. No, 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 no. This is 10 times, 20 times, 30 times the value. It would be the equivalent of, 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 of somebody saying, they, oh, you know, I know my house is actually only worth $300,000, and then walk walking into the bank and claiming that it's worth $10 million so that the bank gives you a whole bunch of cash in, in loan debt, you'd get arrested. You wouldn't go through a civil trial. You would be nope. done. 
So we're already treating him with this with these kid gloves and this different standard. He absolutely he's being run out of the New York business community. But truly, this should have been a criminal prosecution because these the, the amount of money that we're talking about and the disparities here was just absolutely astronomical beyond the pale of what anybody else in the business world I've ever seen do. And that is an excellent point, Melissa. I want to throw that to you, because when you do look at the scale and you read through, you know, the prosecution and, and the things that he did, one does wonder why this was civil and not criminal. Can you explain why that might be? Because I think for a regular person, as Tristan points out, this would be a jailable offense, this kind of fraud against the state. So I think the reason why Tish James decided to deal with this as a civil suit is because the standard for establishing proof in a civil case is far lower than that in a criminal case where the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, which is quite high. And given here that the issue was the valuation of the properties and there can be you know, very subjective valuations, there would be, I think, wider room for finding an, or a verdict of acquittal if this were a criminal trial. But I think it's important to think about this civil verdict in the context of the four criminal indictments that have been brought against Donald Trump. And those four criminal indictments span not only the scope of his presidency in terms of the election interference indictments, but also the period preceding his presidency and the period after. So before, during and after his presidency, we have criminal prosecutions of Donald Trump for serious crimes. And Interestingly, many of those crimes relate to the kinds of things that were charged in the civil fraud trial, this idea that he overinflates his own acumen. So I mean, there's a similar kind of impulse that you see in the election interference. Like I won the I won the vote. I won I, I won the vote exceedingly in all of these states where it's actually much closer than he said. And in some cases, he says that there's been fraud when there's been no fraud at all. I mean, these are all species of the same kind of impulse, sort of overinflate his own worth at the expense of a public that is forced to play by the rules. Well said. Uh, well said. And I think people should really take that in and think about it as you're thinking about who you want to be the president of the United States. Melissa Murray, Tristan Snell and Tim O'Brien, thank you all very thank much. You. And still ahead. Thank you. The hearing on a motion to disqualify D.A. Fonnie Willis from the Trump election interference case continues in Fulton County with Willis's father taking the stand. We'll get a live report on today's testimony from Katie Fang in Atlanta. Next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it. Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow.
It was day two of the Fulton County evidentiary hearing over misconduct allegations that have been aimed at District Attorney Fonnie Willis and the special prosecutor who she appointed to the Trump election RICO case, Nathan Wade. Today, Fonnie Willis's father, John Floyd III, took the stand, which was a surprise given the fact that he was supposed to appear via Zoom. Mr. Floyd testified on behalf of his daughter, defending her practice of keeping large sums of cash at home, which she said was the way she reimbursed Wade for the trips they took together, a claim that is central to her defense against accusations that she personally benefited from bringing Wade on as a prosecutor in the case against Trump and his fellow insurrectionists. Your Honor, I'm not trying to be racist, okay? But it's a black thing, okay? You know, I was trained, and most black folks, they hide cash, or they keep cash. I mean, that's just true. Mr. Floyd also described nightmare threats against his daughter's safety after she took office, a circumstance that an earlier witness had said led her to move to a condo being rented by a former friend. There have been so many death threats, uh, uh, and they said they were going to blow up the house. They were going to kill her. They were going to kill me. They were going to kill my grandchildren. I mean, on and on and on. It just uh, it became and I was concerned for her safety. On Thursday, Willis testified that the threats against her grew so extreme that she could no longer live at her home. Mr. Floyd also testified that his daughter was in a relationship with a DJ in 2019 and that he had never met Nathan Wade from 2019 onward, which contradicts the testimony of former Fulton County employee Robin Yerty, who claimed that Willis and Wade started their relationship in 2019. Despite all of the salacious details that the defendant's lawyers have ginned up to seemingly fuel Donald Trump's social media posts, it is yet to be seen if these lawyers have successfully provided any evidence any evidence at all to support their misconduct claims. Joining me now from the courthouse in Atlanta is Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of the Katie Fang show on MSNBC. Katie, uh, what struck me today about Mr. Floyd's testimony was that it truly was a class, I think, for a lot of Americans, namely, honestly, white Americans in the lives of black folks, in the things that you do, you know, keeping cash at home. Um, There's a piece where he talked about not being able to you know, you have his credit cards accepted when he went to shop when he was in Cambridge, that kind of thing. I thought he was brilliant. What, what did you make of his testimony? Yeah, so there were two very powerful aspects of John Floyd's testimony. Number one, how could you not be impressed? The man in and of himself was a legal legend. He was the first to try a case in the international criminal court. But what came across was his earnest desire to tell the truth. He took the stand in a surprise. He was supposed to appear via Zoom. And it was so great to be able to assess his body language and his credibility in person. And that's really what counts here, right, Joy? The idea that the judge has a chance to assess the credibility of the witnesses that are testifying in this evidentiary hearing. But John Floyd made it clear that he raised his daughter to be like him and to understand the importance of taking care of herself and of being independent. And it fed completely into the corroboration, which is what the state did, of Fannie Willis's sworn testimony yesterday. Joy, I will tell you that the evidence has now concluded in this case. The judge has indicated that oral arguments will take place towards the end of next week, maybe the following week. And they will be brief, Joy. They will only be 10 to 15 minutes. 
The testimony took a bizarre and unexpected turn this afternoon when Terrence Bradley, the former divorce attorney for Nathan Wade, took the stand. Remember, there was this whole legal wrangling about whether or not he could even testify because of attorney-client privilege. The defense tried to pierce that privilege by saying that a crime, a fraud, had been perpetrated on the court by Nathan Wade. But Judge McAfee said absolutely not. That crime-fraud exception does not apply here. And so Terrence Bradley cannot testify about any privileged communications he had with his then-client, Nathan Wade. But Joy, this is an evidentiary hearing, and I may sound like a broken record, but it's something that is worth repeating over and over again. And and I'm glad that it's something that you bring up time and time again on your show. We traffic in evidence and the facts when we are trial lawyers. This is an evidentiary hearing. There is a law that applies to disqualification. There has to be an actual conflict of interest. The defense had its burden. It has not met its burden. And at this point, there is nothing And I say nothing that would substantiate or support the idea that Fannie Willis should be disqualified. Right, because there has to be a conflict of interest that's financial. It can't be. I mean, people on the other side, they can be married to each other. Doesn't matter. It has to be an actual financial conflict of interest. Am I clear on that? Am I correct? It has to be a personal stake in the conviction of a defendant, Joy, right. and, and Fannie Willis doesn't have any. And I've said, what an elaborate scheme, right? To, to, if, you, if you believe what the defense has to say, Fannie Willis put together this whole indictment. What, she convinced a special purpose grand jury to return charges. She convinced a grand jury to return an indictment just so her then boyfriend, who, by the way, she doesn't even date anymore, so that right. he could get a job, so that she could take that a trip, no a trip that she testified she reimbursed that, him in cash yeah, that, that her no daddy sense. told her to keep. Come yeah. on, right? Let me let me play very quickly before I let you go. This is fo- the former Governor Roy Barnes sure. on why he didn't take the job as special prosecutor instead of Nathan Wade. Take a look. Were you approached um, by uh, the district attorney of Fulton County, uh, Fonnie Willis, um, about being a special prosecutor? I was. Uh, I don't do you, I don't recall the exact date, but uh, I know it was sometime uh, in 2021. I told uh, D.A. Willis I didn't, I'd lived with uh, bodyguards uh, for four years and I didn't like it and I wasn't going to live with bodyguards for the rest of my life. I thought this was an important point. He didn't want the job because he didn't want to get death threats from Trump supporters for the rest of his life. And so Nathan Wade was the one who had the guts to do it. Yes, and that fits in with what John Floyd, Fonnie Willis's dad, said, that they had to move because of the death threats, because there were racial epithets and slurs that were being chanted outside of her home, that there was fear of harm to her children that was going to come. It fits with the MAGA agenda. It fits with the MAGA motive to be able to try to intimidate. And intimidation is also part of this indictment, right? There are claims yes. that are being raised that certain witnesses were intimidated. And so, Joy, you heard a former governor say, I'm not taking the job because I'm not going to make a lot of money off of it. I'm not taking it because I'm not going to be threatened because I've done yeah. it before and I've gone through it and before. It, and it feels like intimidation and humiliation is why we're here now litigating whether this woman was dating this man and whether she had cash in her house. Katie Fang, that's me saying that, not you. So I'll, I'll keep I'll hold that one. Katie Fang, thank you. Coming up, the death of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny sparks international condemnation of Putin's regime and protests across Russia. Stay with us. Now to the parallel stories of a Russian patriot and an American idiot. The patriot, Alexei Navalny, the 47-year-old Russian political activist who led the most successful opposition campaign against Russian dictator Vladimir Putin for more than a decade, 
galvanizing primarily young Russians to stand up against their dictator, using social media and just plain bravery. So successful in exposing Putin's corruption that he was barred from running for president against Putin in 2018. In 2020, he was poisoned with a military nerve agent on a, while on a business trip to Siberia, blaming the attempt on his life directly on Putin. After recuperating in Germany, he returned to Russia in 2021 and was immediately imprisoned and sentenced to a draconian 30 and a half year sentence on a series of seemingly trumped up charges. Navalny was eventually transferred to a Siberian gulag where he was kept in a punishment cell. He was seen in court Thursday via video link from the penal colony, seeming to appear healthy. According to Russian authorities, today he fell sick and lost consciousness after a walk and died. And whether you believe that he died under the brutal conditions in that Arctic prison or that Vladimir Putin had him put to death, either way, the responsibility for his death lies at the feet of Putin, as Vice President Kamala Harris explained during a forceful speech in Munich, where she met on the sidelines with Navalny's now widow, Yulia. We've all just received reports that Alexei Navalny has died in Russia. This is, of course, terrible news, which we are working to confirm. My prayers are with his family, including his wife, Yulia, who is with us today. And if confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear, Russia is responsible. And we will have more to say on this later. Which brings us to the American idiot. According to Craig Unger, who interviewed a former KGB spy named Yuri Schwetz for his book, American Compromat, Our American Idiot, Donald John Trump, a third-rate real estate developer from Queens who was desperate to break into the big leagues in Manhattan and to be respected by the blue-heeled elites he so claims to despise, first appeared on the Soviet Union's radar in 1977 when he married his first wife, Ivana Zelnikova, a Czech model. And he allegedly became the target of a spying operation overseen by Czechoslovakia's intelligence service in cooperation with the KGB. Three years later, he opened his first big property development in New York, the Grand Hyatt, buying 200 television sets from a Soviet emigre and KGB asset who co-owned an electronics shop on Fifth Avenue. The asset befriended Trump and got in the habit of flattering him. In 1987, Donald and Ivana visited Russia, pumped full of talking points that the operative reportedly fed him by stoking his ego and telling him he should go into politics. To understand how to exploit our American idiot, the Soviets studied his personality. The former KGB Major Schwetz told The Guardian, for the KGB, it was a charm offensive. The feeling was that he was extremely vulnerable intellectually and psychologically, and he was prone to flattery. And flatter they did. Word started to spread that our American idiot might run for the Republican nomination for president in 1988. And shortly after he returned from Moscow, he took a full page ad out in The New York Times, declaring that there's nothing wrong with America's foreign policy that a little backbone can't cure. It took the form of an open letter to the American people on why America should stop paying to defend countries that can afford to defend themselves. 
The ad criticized Ronald Reagan's foreign policy and implied skepticism about U.S. participation in NATO. The night it first ran, he went on CNN and was asked about NATO. There are many other countries and taking tremendous advantage of this, including NATO. If you look at the payments that we're making to NATO, they're totally disproportionate with everybody else's, and it's ridiculous. Fast forward to 2016, that American idiot, Donald John Trump, actually became president, due almost entirely to his celebrity as a former reality TV star on NBC. And now, as an ex-president, having committed serial crimes before, during, and after his presidency, including fomenting an attempted coup to try to remain in office after losing his bid for re-election because of how incompetent he was as president, that Donald John Trump is still peddling those same pro-Russia talking points, talking points so perfectly aligned with the Kremlin. It's almost as if he was still receiving them from Moscow. Russia helped get Donald Trump elected in 2016, according to the Mueller report, by exploiting American social and racial divisions and amplifying them online, and by stealing Hillary Clinton's emails and exploiting the news media's voracious interest in them. And former KGB spy Vladimir Putin, who has been dictator of Russia in one way or another for nearly 25 years, is getting bolder and more blatant in his determination to subordinate the United States to him, to rebuild the Soviet Union by annexing Ukraine, which he lectured another American idiot, Tucker Carlson, belongs to Russia, and by openly jailing and killing his opposition with impunity, the latest victim being Alexei Navalny. While Trump leads one of our two major political parties, with his fellow Republicans parroting Russian talking points to the point where it's almost parody. Whether you agree with it or not, Vladimir Putin believes that Russia has a historic claim to parts of Western Ukraine. So our opinion would be to view it in that light as a sincere expression of what he thinks. We're paying for a war, a proxy war with Russia, when I've never seen Putin actually show in any detail his plans to invade Europe. No one has shown me that. So I don't believe the lies that I'm being told about this. Making people believe like Ukraine can win. No, Ukraine can't. Putin won't lose. Putin will not lose. He's not going to lose. You have to stack that into the reality if you're going to deal with this thing effectively to bring this war to an end. Today, the Republicans' dear leader, Donald John Trump, had no response to the death of Alexei Navalny, as one would expect from someone so enthralled to Vladimir Putin. But President Biden did not mince words about Navalny's death or the Russian dictator's regime. We'll play you what he said after this quick break. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. We don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was a consequence of something that Putin and his, and his thugs did. 
Strong words from President Biden on the tragic death of Alexei Navalny, wrongly imprisoned in a Syrian Siberian gulag. We still don't know all the details, but as the president said, ultimately, Putin is responsible. Joining me now is former CIA director John Brennan, MSNBC senior national security and intelligence analyst, and Tom Nichols, staff writer for The Atlantic. John, uh, John Brennan, I do want to also play for you Alexei Navalny's uh, widow, Yulia Navalny. And this is what she said this morning in Munich. But if it is the truth, I would like Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends, I want them know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family and with my husband. They will be brought to justice and this day will come soon. John Brennan, who will bring justice to Yulia Navalny? Well, hopefully the Russian people uh, will be the ones to actually mete out the justice. It's clear that, as President Biden said, Alexei Navalny was killed at the hands of the Putin regime, which has been responsible for the deaths of many, many individuals over the past two decades. Journalists, political oppositionists, anti-corruption activists, former military and government officials. This is something that Mr. Putin has done when he's fearful of individuals or seeks revenge. Clearly, Alexei Navalny has been a thorn in Putin's side for many years. And clearly what has happened to him, tragically, is a result of Putin continuing to fear him. And so I think, as Yulia said, there will be justice that will be brought as a result of this latest death. When it's going to come, is uh, we don't know. But I am confident yeah. that ultimately the Russian people are going to overcome what has transpired over the last two decades, which is the terror of Putin's regime. Yeah, you know, Tom, I think of Alexei Navalny, if anyone hasn't seen the documentary, I think they should really watch it. This is an heroically brave man. Um, people like Vladimir Karamurza, heroically brave people who are fighting for their country, true patriots to their country and want it to be a democracy. And you see these people, these these very brave protesters, they're out on the street and we'll show you some of them. Uh, you know, one person was arrested. There were actual protests in Moscow today. It's incredibly brave to do that. You will be arrested. And when I see that, and then I see this, an American, Tucker Carlson, who calls himself a journalist, but in court admits he's an entertainer. Let me let you see what he's doing in Moscow while they're protesting and risking their lives. If you take people's standard of living and you tank it through filth and crime and inflation, and they literally can't buy the groceries they want, at that point, maybe it matters less what you say or whether you're a good person or a bad person. You're wrecking people's lives in their country. And that's what our leaders have done to us. And coming to a Russian grocery store, the heart of evil, and seeing what things cost and how people live, it will radicalize you against our leaders. That's how I feel anyway. <laughs> Most people in Moscow pay, a pay half of their salary for food. They're not buying $200 worth of groceries. Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina, said, oh, yes, Russia is so much better than the U.S. with all those cheap groceries and lavish subway stations. The Soviets had a term for people like Tucker, useful idiots. What term would you use? Pathetic. It's it's pathetic. Um, and I can tell you, I've been in a lot more Russian grocery stores uh, over the past uh, 30 years than Tucker Carlson's ever set foot in. And he he's um, 
this kind of needy attention seeking, you know, going to any place that will have him just to put him uh, just to put him in front of a camera, uh, regardless of the consequences, regardless of truth uh, or or lies um, is really just pathetic. So that's the word I'd come up with. Don Brennan, what do you make of it? It does feel like we've got a whole lot of useful idiots that are doing Putin's work for him up to and including Donald Trump and his party. Yeah, Joy, I think we have far, far too many individuals, politicians, journalists, pundits, and others who are doing exactly what Vladimir Putin wants them to do, which is to be able to propagate his talking points on American airwaves. And as Tom said, the fact that Tucker Carlson is out there conducted an interview with Putin and now is spewing forth this, this just makes him even more detestable, I think, from the standpoint of he is undermining what this country stands for, the values of this country. And unfortunately, as he puts his words into an echo chamber, too many people soak it up and believe what he is saying. Yeah. And interview, the word interview is doing a lot of work there, Tom Nichols. I mean, what in the world is going on with the Republican Party that they are so in hoc to Russia and seem to be so in love with Russia and with the, you know, allies of Russia, um, people like Viktor Orban? Well, some of this, and, you know, we've talked about this many times in the past, some of this is just um, a, a, a Republican embrace of Russia because they really believe that Russia is this white Christian defender of you know conservative tradition and values when in fact Russia is a mafia state it is decadent um, beyond words I mean there are parts of of uh, things that go on in Moscow and parts of Russia that make uh, America um, look like like um, the old American Gothic painting of virtue and rectitude um, of course these are the things that people like Carlson are, are never going to see and don't care about um, it's also uh, I think a kind of um, opposite world like toddlers that if this is what most people believe um, about Russia and if this is what the Biden administration is doing and if this is is what our European allies believe in. Well, then it must be wrong, and we have to get onto the other side of this. Um, to have you know somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene say he's talking about how she's never seen the plans and and she's not seen the evidence. She has no idea what she's talking about. None of these people really have any idea what they're talking about. Um, most of them probably couldn't have spotted Russia on a map or hit it um, blindfolded throwing a dart. Um, uh, until five or ten years ago, and so yeah. they're they're simply trying to kind of ride the wave of this this um, sentiment for their own personal gain. Yeah, it's pathetic. It's embarrassing, uh, and it's dangerous. Uh, John Brennan, Tom Nichols, thank you both very much. And that, my friends, is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.